0: This summer we're in a series in 1 Corinthians, it's called Bodybuilding. And so if you're just recently joining us, whether online, uh, via live stream or whether you're a guest with us, uh, you may be jumping in right in the middle of a series and saying, what's this all about? What are you guys talking about? We're talking about one of the New Testament letters that is written by the great apostle Paul, who probably authored about half of the books of the New Testament. This one is 1 Corinthians, and we're about halfway through now. We're in chapter 8. Uh, On the surface, it it looks like uh, talking about what do Christians do with food that is sacrificed to idols. That was the big issue there in Corinth in the first century. We have other issues that are big in our culture for us today. And I want to begin by uh, offering a couple of scenarios Um, because every Christian, every person who calls himself or herself a follower of Christ, every one of us has a list of do's and don'ts. We have a list of behaviors in our mind that this is what Christians do, and this is what Christians don't do. You know, what was that old line? I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Right? That, That was one of those Christian lines, right? Uh, That was from yesteryear. Every one of us has one of those lists of what I, this is what I do, and this is what I don't do as a follower of Christ. Um, Before we get to those lists, I want to offer you three scenarios. The first one comes from the 1870s in England. This was in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And if you recall, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In 1874, he was preaching there, I believe it was on a Sunday night, and he uh, was known uh, uh, besides being called the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon was also known as an avid cigar smoker, a great cigar smoker. I remember a story where some woman came up to him and said, Uh, Reverend Spurgeon, don't you think you're smoking too many cigars? And his reply to her was, Madam, if you ever see two cigars in my mouth at one time, then you'll know that I'm smoking too many cigars. (laughs) So uh, this was in 1874, and there was a guest preacher from America. He gave a message in in, uh, Spurgeon's church there in the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle, and the American guest preacher shared his conviction about his own smoking habit, and he, and he realized in his own life that it had become addictive and it was detrimental to his health and that God, he felt, this, this American preacher, said that God told him to stop smoking. And so to the glory of God, this American preacher was able to quit smoking. And by the way, this was in a time in the 1870s when nobody talked about the health dangers of smoking. It was just a habit that you either did or didn't do. Everyone in the congregation knew that their pastor Spurgeon smoked. And so everybody was looking to see Spurgeon and see what he was going to do in response to this American preacher that just said God told him to stop smoking. And so uh, Spurgeon uh, went up to the pulpit and he thanked the American preacher for his message. And then he announced that to the glory of God, I will enjoy a cigar before I go to bed tonight. (laughs) So there's a scenario. What should he do? There's 1870s in England. Now, fast forward to the 1980s in California, and I'll talk about myself because in our college days... Uh, when we were late teens, early 20s, uh, we used to get together, some guy friends in ours, uh, and, and we would get together and we'd play poker. And we played poker for money, and I mean real money, like nickel annie, and dime bets and quarter was the max that you could bet. But you know, b- big money, there could be like, at one time there could be like $4 in the pot and everybody got nervous and started sweating, That's back when, uh, you know, we all ate at Del Taco. So, you know, I guys don't even know Del Taco. (sighs) How sad. (laughs) Got to go to Fairfield. I have to go to Fairfield to find the nearest Del Taco. So, that's my latest request for Northern California. One less Taco Bell and one more Del Taco. All right. That's my SoCal bias. All right. So, now, 1980s in California, we're playing poker. And as was our habit, what we also did in the poker games is we uh, we p- had beer, and we had sodas, and we had cigars. We had these little tipperillos, which we thought were so cool. You know, and we, were, we thought we were such adults, you know, having our cigars, chomping our cigars, or maybe smoking them, drinking our beer, playing poker. Uh, none of us drank too much. Not, to my recollection, none of us got drunk Uh, But that was our habit and we were all Christians in the group and we all, you know, trumpeted freedom in Christ and we could do what we wanted to do and so that was what we did and then along came uh, a guy to our group. Uh, He was a friend of ours from high school but nobody knew what his spiritual status was. We didn't know if he had become a Christ follower or not. Uh, He just was uh, uh, sort of a casual friend and he shows up and he starts playing poker with us And none of us stopped uh, our beer drinking. None of us stopped our cigar smoking. We just kept on doing what we did. And uh, I don't know exactly what his attitude was toward it. In fact, to this day, I often wonder what he thought of us, good Christian boys, as we're sitting around playing poker, drinking beer, and smoking cigars. So that was my story from the 1980s. I'll uh, go back in time now, about 2,000 years, to the time of Jesus. In Matthew 16, when Jesus is walking along with his disciples, they're up out of the territory of Israel. They're in pagan country. They're over by a big city called Caesarea Philippi, big pagan worship center there. And Jesus starts talking to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And then finally, he buttonholes the disciples themselves. You know, that's an easy thing to do if you're wearing buttons. They were wearing robes, they didn't even have buttons. So uh, he grabs them by the robe, so to speak, and he says, what about you, disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, uh, you know, he's the first one to respond and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Peter says, ding, ding, ding. You got it on the nose, Peter. Uh, Blessed are you. And then right after that, when Peter got uh, Jesus' identification, who he was, he got that right. Jesus immediately continued the conversation. And he says, you know what? The Son of Man, which was a reference to himself, he says, we're going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be arrested and they're going to mistreat him and they're going to mock him and beat him and spit on him and eventually crucify him and put him to death. But on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. And do you remember what Peter's immediate reaction was to that? Right after Peter had gotten it right, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter immediately heard about the suffering and the rejection of Jesus by the leaders in Jerusalem. And Peter's reaction was, my Lord, never, he said, this shall never come to pass. This shall never happen to you. And do you remember what Jesus's reaction was? To Peter's declaration, this should never happen to you. Peter turned around to, or Jesus turned around to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. He actually called Peter Satan. He says, you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter got the identification of who Jesus was right, but Peter got the mission of Jesus how he had come to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. He got the mission completely wrong. And Jesus said, Peter, at this moment, when you're trying to keep me from going to Jerusalem and to the cross, it's hard enough to go, but when my own, one of my own best friends is trying to keep me from going, you don't have in mind the things of God. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, that's the first time in the New Testament where that word stumbling block is used. And the word stumbling block, that phrase about causing somebody else to trip up and fall into sin, that word, that phrase stumbling block is also used in this chapter of 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. Now, as I said before, uh, Christians throughout the ages, they've all had their lists of do's and don'ts, lists of practices and habits that uh, good Christian people do these things and good Christian people do not do these other things. You know, I I was thinking about to yesteryear in the old days. Say it was 100 years ago. What do you think was on the list of do's and don'ts for Christians to be able to do? Well, Christians certainly could not dance, which is probably why the movie Footloose was made. (laughs) Uh, Christians couldn't dance. Christians couldn't play pool. Do you remember uh, Professor Harold Higgins or whatever his name was in The Music Man, 1912, there in Iowa when he says, we got trouble. We got trouble right here in River City. And it starts with P and it rhymes with T and it stands for pool. Playing pool was going to be the big evil in River City, Iowa in 1912. Good people should not be playing pool. Wearing makeup was prohibited, which I totally disavow. In fact, I I encourage all women, uh, look as good as you can. All right, so wearing makeup was considered bad. Going to movies was considered wrong. In 1955, listening to rock music and dancing like that evil young man, Elvis Presley, that was considered wrong. Women wearing pants was considered wrong. And there was a certain dress code in church if I were dressed the way I am now, 30 years ago, preaching as a pastor in the pulpit, some people would say, tsk, tisk tisk, and they would say, this can't be a good Christian pastor to be up here without a coat and tie on. You know, so, that, so we've had our rules about what good Christians can and cannot do. Let's fast forward now to 2018. What's on the list? And this is not an exhaustive list, although I think it's fairly full. But what are some of the things that are questionable practices that some Christians may believe that good Christians can do this, or good Christians should not do this other thing? What about drinking wine? What about drinking beer? What about drinking alcohol of any kind? What about going to movies? And I don't, I don't mean like, you know, going to G-rated or PG movies. What about going to R-rated movies? Is that okay for Christians to do? What about food? And you say, well, how can food be on your list? Food can't be evil. We need food to live. Yeah, but there is such a thing as gluttony or too much food. Or we live in this uh, county where there's a lot of people who are vegetarian or vegan. And certain food is considered almost evil because we're killing animals. And we're killing something that God gave life to. So food, certain kind, eating certain kind of foods, dress codes in church. I mean, how short can the skirt be? How low can the top be? You know, before it's like, hey, uh, this is, you know, you cross the line here in church. What about Christians going to nightclubs or going to dance clubs? Uh, well, if they're ballroom dancing, I guess it's okay. Whoa, you know, so now you got to define what they are. What about smoking? Is it okay for Christians to smoke? Is it okay for Christians to smoke cigarettes or cigars? Or is it okay, <gasps> what about Mary Jane? What about marijuana? What about token the weed? Is that okay for Christians to do? What about drugs? What about whether it's prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs, weight loss pills? uh, Is that okay for Christians to do? Anything that amps you up, alters your state of consciousness, maybe speeds up your metabolism uh, chemically, is that okay for Christians to do? I know I'm going to step on some toes now, my buddy in the drum kit. Uh, What about going to boxing matches or going to UFC fights? Is that okay for Christians to do? Is it okay for Christians to watch? That's violence. What about ranting? What about ranting on social media? And I don't mean just like talking, just saying a comment like like or wink or putting a dislike or a sad face. I'm not talking about, you know, a a normal reaction, like 90 percent of our reactions on Facebook or something like that. What about when you read or hear something and something bubbles up inside of you and your emotions get all worked up and you just go off on a tear and you say some things that if you were in the presence of that person talking to them face-to-face, you probably wouldn't say it that way. But hiding behind the pseudonym of, you know, uh, cool guy, 68, you know, whatever, uh, not your real name online, you feel like you have the freedom to just haul off and plaster somebody. You know, is that okay for Christians to do? Woo! Woo! That's, a, that's quite an exhaustive list. I've probably stepped on a toe or two. My, my uh, expectation was somebody was going to say, Wow, Pastor, now you're really getting up in our business, right? I thought somebody was going to say that by now. Well, Paul was going to do the same thing over the issue that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The issue wasn't any of these. Issues of what could be a potential stumbling block. The issue in the first century was eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. So let's jump into it together. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we, quote, we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. You know, when I read this, I, I think to myself and I say, you need at least two important qualities to be a good follower of Christ. You need two things to, to be uh, values, to be a follower of Jesus. The first thing you need is you need some kind of knowledge, right? God desires that all men, that all men and women be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth we need to know a few things about God and Jesus and who he is and what it means to have a, uh, a living, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So we need some kind of knowledge uh, of these things. What, it, what are the, the main things that we believe? But besides knowledge, uh, because Paul says knowledge puffs up in another translation, knowledge sometimes makes you feel more important about yourself than you really ought to feel. It says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So besides knowledge, we need love. We need to always be acting in the best interest of the other person. So as we think about what I have freedom in Christ to do or what you have freedom as a follower of Jesus, to do or not to do, you know, my conscience isn't bothering me. I have the freedom to do these things. But you also need to remember number two, Because whoever the people you're around, you always need to be loving your neighbor as yourself. You always need to be acting in the best interest of the other person. And Paul really emphasizes that. Paul here gives a warning about knowledge. Paul says it is possible that in gaining knowledge, if you gain knowledge but you don't grow in love as you grow in knowledge, that can actually be a harmful thing for you as a follower of Christ. It says, uh, it depends on what you do with the knowledge that you have. There are some people out there who've acquired so much knowledge that they've become a know-it-all. Knowledge can make you look good. Knowledge can make you feel really important. When you know all the Bible answers to all the Bible questions, you can feel pretty important and and uh, significant in the kingdom of God. But if you're not careful, that knowledge can turn into an arrogant attitude, an attitude of becoming a know-it-all, that nobody can say anything to you because you know all things and you've gotten prideful and arrogant about it. You just know better than everybody else. And I think every one of us has probably met somebody in church who knows a lot of things about the Bible but they're not, you don't consider them a very loving, gracious person at the same time. So Paul gives that warning. Knowledge puffs up. It makes arrogance sometimes, but love is always building up and strengthening the people who are around you. Love is so much better than knowledge. Love is always trying to bless and build up other people. Look what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another In fact, I bet you some of you guys in Sunday school, you remember this song? You said, Beloved, let us love one another. Right? Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So Paul, John says it pretty strongly. He says, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if you don't love other people and live in such a way as to strengthen them and to, and to bolster them, encourage them in their faith, to build them up, not tear them down, if you're not doing that, it says uh, anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. So all that knowledge that you have gained about theology and stuff, if you're not acting in love, John says you really don't know the God who's behind all these facts and figures that are in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says it this way, John says love one another, Paul says love builds up and strengthens each other. So he says in verse two, and I'll repeat it, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes, okay? So what are Christians to do with that in this category now of meat that's been offered to idols? It says in verse four, um, so what about meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know There it is. We all know that an idol is not really a god. We all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. You know, in the first century in Corinth, idolatry was a very real problem. I remember in Acts 17 where Paul's walking around another city in Greece in southern Greece there, uh, Athens, and Paul looks around and he says, I notice that you have shrines and temples and altars to worship all different kinds of gods. In fact, the Athens, the Athenians wanted to cover their bases so much, Paul said, you even have an altar to an unknown god, which is sort of like saying, in case we missed one of the gods that's out there and we didn't even know you existed and we forgot to worship you too, here's an altar to you, right? So, There's uh, polytheism or idolatry, worshiping many gods, was very common in Corinth in the first century. And there were temples all over the city. And in these temples, uh, most of the worship had some element of sacrifice. They would take some animal and offer that animal in sacrifice to God, to that particular God. Not the God of the Bible, not the Lord of heaven and earth, not Yahweh, uh, which is the God whom we worship, uh, but to one of the other gods, and they were worshiping gods like that. And Paul says, what do you do then? Uh, Because after the animal has been sacrificed and after the sacrifice has been given, what they used to do is then they would take the meat from that animal and they would sell it in the marketplace. And everybody pretty much knew in Corinth that most all of the good meat that was out there was probably sacrificed at a temple somewhere in the city. And so It's hard to eat meat that's not sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul's saying, okay, idolatry is a big problem. All the meat's been sacrificed to idols. Uh, What are you supposed to do with that? And the first thing Paul does is remind the Corinthians to say, hey, by the way, are all those idols to whom the sacrifices have been made in those temples, are those idols real? Are they really gods? Do they have supernatural powers? And Paul's answer was, the answer is no. There's only one God, the Lord of heaven and earth. In fact, uh, Paul says this, uh, he says, but for us, this is in verse 6, there's one God, in in verse 6, there's one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. And then he says in verse 7, he says, however, not all believers know this. They don't realize that these idols out there, not all believers understand the way we do that there's really only one God, the Father, the Creator, and Jesus Christ, who's our Lord, through whom God made all things. Not everybody understands that. Even Christians, even new believers don't understand that there's really only one God and all these other idols are not really gods. So what do you do with that? when their conscience is weak when their conscience says i don't know if i can eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol because i I think there's some there's some spiritual power some dark spiritual force that might be attached to that meat because it was sacrificed to an idol he says in this uh, some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real so that when they eat food that has been offered to idols They think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. So Paul talks about strong Christians, and he talks about weak Christians here in 1 Corinthians 8. The strong Christians are the ones that know there's only one God, and all these other idols are false gods. They're just made up. They're human invented gods, and they don't have any divine spiritual power at all. Uh, the other people who are considered the weak Christians are the ones who think the idols somehow are really small g gods and they have spiritual power. Paul says in verse 8, it is true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. So somebody's going to say, hey, if I eat this meat sacrificed to an idol, I, th- I think I'm sinning against God because there's only, you know, I want to worship God. I don't want to worship this idol. And if I eat this meat, it's going to be sort of like silently I'm sort of saying yes to the worship of this idol. And Paul says, no, we're not really doing that. We don't lose anything if we don't eat that meat. We don't gain anything if we do eat that meat. The best cuts of meat, of course, came from animals that had been sacrificed to idols. Um... Some people thought because they were sacrificed to these idols, these gods, whether it was Jupiter or Apollo or Aphrodite or whatever the names of all these ancient gods were, that there was some spiritual voodoo, if I want to say that word. There was some demonic power that because of the sacrifice of the animal to that god, there was some spiritual dark power that went into the meat. And so that if Christians were to buy that meat and eat the meat, It would like they would be violated. They would either be worshiping somebody other than God or that the dark spiritual power from that idol meat would get into them and somehow corrupt them. And Paul's saying, no. Uh, Paul's saying he knew that all food was a blessing from God and that even if the, the meat was sacrificed to an idol, it didn't taint the food. It was still okay. So Paul didn't have a problem eating the meat. Just so you know, Paul, who's a good Jewish person who grew up with one God only, you know, saying the Shema, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is one of their, um, their declarations of saying there's only one God, and his name is Yahweh, and that's the only God whom we worship, the creator of heaven and earth. That's what the, the Jewish uh, theology was, and so anything else that calls itself a God is not really a God at all, it's just a man made invention. So, but here's, here's the reminder. It says we don't lose anything if we eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. And by the way... Just going back to that list that we all have in our minds, this is good behavior for Christians to do. This is bad behavior for Christians to do. Maybe there's a middle ground, some neutral ground. This is questionable behavior. Some Christians can do it and they're okay. Other Christ followers would do this and it's not okay. They're violating their conscience. Whatever side of the the ledger they fall on, it says, look at this. We don't lose anything if we eat this meat, we don't gain anything if we do. So, I think Paul was given a reminder to saying, hey, you guys, whether you eat meat, sacrificed to an idol or not, the real issue is not, you're, you're not, in other words, you're not gaining anything with God if you eat this meat or don't eat this meat. Eating or not eating this meat is not going to get you into a right relationship with God right? And the same thing ha- goes with dancing or drugs or alcohol or clubs or gambling. Did I mention gambling, by the way? Oh, how about playing the lottery? How about sports betting? How about uh, all the money that's going out there? And by the way, they're, le- they're going to legalize gambling more and more and more. And so you can, you can, uh, you can gamble just about any time. I remember the first time I went into Nevada, just crossing the state line, went into a coffee shop to get something to eat and there's slot machines, right? Because you're now on the Nevada state line or you're at the airport going into Las Vegas and you look over and there's slot machines or there's other ways to gamble. It's just like everywhere you look. And is gambling okay or not okay for Christians to do? You know, there's another issue. So wherever you find yourself on these do's and don'ts lists as a Christ follower that would not or would violate your conscience, You just have to know that the main thing is none of us have a right relationship with God just because we live a certain lifestyle. Just because you don't do certain things doesn't automatically make you in a right relationship with God. Just because you do certain things, even if you go to church, you're sitting here on Sunday and you say, hey, I'm doing a good thing. I'm worshiping God. But if just sitting here in the pew doesn't automatically put you in a right relationship with God, right? So doing or not doing certain behaviors, that's not justifying us before God. It's really by God's grace that we're saved through faith. What puts us in a right relationship with God is putting our trust in Jesus Christ and making Him our Savior and realizing what He's done for us when He gave His life on the cross. And when we put our trust in Him, uh, Jesus says we've crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what justifies us with God, is putting our trust in Jesus. The rest is just kind of gravy. But now that we are Christ followers, every one of us has these daily choices of what is it okay to do and what is it not okay to do as Christ followers. So just because we have certain freedom in Christ, now that we're justified by faith, that doesn't give us the right to trample on the sensitive consciousness, consciences of other believers. Remember what Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We have to live in such a way that we're going to help build up other believers around us, to help edify them and strengthen them in their faith, not do something that's going to violate their conscience or going to help tear down their faith. You know, Christians, for example, Christians who drink wine or beer, they're supposed to practice moderation because the Bible does say something. Let me just say something about alcohol real quick. The Bible doesn't say that Christians cannot drink alcohol. What the Bible does say clearly is that Christians are not to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, right? In Proverbs, it says wine is a brawler and beer is a mocker. Or beer is a mocker and wine is a brawler. He who does both is not wise right? So you get into too much drinking and you start to lose your self-control. That's why Paul says, don't be, don't be controlled by wine or drunk with wine. Be filled with or be controlled with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter says, be sober or be of an alert mind. Be alert and of a sober mind in 1 Peter 5.8. So can Christians drink alcohol? The answer is yes, as long as it's in moderation as long as that you don't drink so much that you get drunk. And getting drunk for many people starts with the second beer or perhaps the second glass of wine. So what are some people doing? Well, there are some people that are, that are limiting themselves. Say, I'm gonna practice moderation. So they're just gonna have one glass of wine. But that one glass could look more like a punch bowl than a, than a glass of wine. I remember there was this, uh, there's this sitcom on, on TV it was starring Courtney Cox, who used to be on Friends, and it was called Cougar Town. It was called Cougar Town, and it took place in Florida, and these guys drank more wine than anybody I've ever seen on the show. And Courtney Cox had this pet wine glass that she called Big Lou. I, I think, I swear, this was like a liter-sized glass of wine. It, was, it looked like a little punch bowl on a stem. And she said, oh, I'm only having one glass of wine, you know, it's like, which is equals one bottle. All right. So th- there's, that, it's sort of like when you're abusing it and you kind of know when you're abusing it or drinking too much or not, because the principle is going to be found in verse number nine. In fact, I think 1 Corinthians 8 and chapter 9, I think this is the key principle to the whole chapter of understanding everything about food and idols and what it's okay for Christians to do and not okay for Christians to do. It says, but you, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. You may think you have the freedom to do that, but if that's going to cause somebody else who has a weaker conscience to stumble, in other words, you say, oh, I think it's okay to go to R-rated movies as a, as a Christ follower. But if I'm with somebody, like I'm with a relative, and I'm thinking of a relative right now, and I'm not going to mention his or her name, but this relative made up her mind, there I gave away the gender, uh, made up her mind that she was not going to go to R-rated movies no matter what. And so I invited her to Saving Private Ryan and she said no. I invited her to Schindler's List and she said no. I invited her back in the day to see The Passion of the Christ, which is rated R, by the way, and she said no. And so I now am, every time we, you know, we get together and we want to go see a movie, I know better than to look on a list of movies that might be rated R and say, hey, would you like to go to this movie? I know, because I'm not going to violate... Her conscience to go to a movie like that. So that's, that's just an example. You must be careful that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble, right? Just because you have freedom to do something in your life, you don't get the right to flaunt that freedom and lead somebody else into sin. And so here's principle number one. Principle number one is this. Christian liberty must never be flaunted. Flaunted. You don't get to Throw it in people's face and say, I've got the freedom in Christ to do this, so neener, neener, you know, go pound sand. You don't, you, know, you don't get to say anything about it. Whatever you believe about these things, look at this in Romans 14, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, right? There's, there's certain activities that if they're considered questionable, don't uh, go trumpeting them from the mountaintops and say, I have the freedom to do this and nobody can say anything to me. Because it says in verse 10, for if others see you with your superior knowledge, if others see you eating in the temple of an idol, you know, here's the temple, animals are sacrificed to this pagan God and they've got a restaurant and a barbecue right next to it. Uh, Would you like to eat this meat? And they see you sitting at the booth there eating meat that's been sacrificed to that idol. Certain Christ followers, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, in other words, I have knowledge that this idol really isn't anything, It doesn't matter what that other person believes. It doesn't matter what their conscience is violated or not. I have the freedom to do this, and I have knowledge that it's okay. It says that because of your knowledge and that attitude where knowledge puffs up, that arrogant attitude, because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed, right? So your appetite to uh, lend from a Guns N' Roses album, your appetite could lead to somebody else's destruction. Don't want to do that. Principle number one, Christian liberty must not be flaunted. Principle number two, your Christian liberty should never be used in such a way that you become a stumbling block to another Christian verse 12. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something that they believe is wrong, ah, oh, just drink this, try this, do this. It's not going to harm you. If if you know in advance that this is violating their conscience and you're encouraging them to do it anyway, it says you are sinning against Christ. I remember one time as a dad and it's one of my lowest moments as a father. I think my son Tyler was about 10. And the girls had gone off to see a girl movie. And the guys were going to go see a guy movie. And I think there was some kind of a war, destruction, shoot 'em up. You know, men, men and women, are, or mostly men, are going to die. Bad guys are going to die. The good guy's going to win. But there's going to be a lot of violence in this movie. And I was really gung-ho to see this movie. And I thought it would be a real masculine thing to bond with my son and to go see this movie. And I think it was rated PG-13 and he was 10. And this is how... This is how my son Tyler's conscience worked. Tyler at the time said, Dad, that movie's rated PG-13. That means that you're supposed to be 13 years old before you see a movie like that. I said, yeah, Tyler, but you know, I, I'm your dad and I'm with you and it's okay. You can go see this movie with me. He's like, Dad, it's rated PG-13. I don't think it's good for, it's probably, there's probably something in it that's not going to be good for me. Can you imagine a 10-year-old schooling his dad, telling him this? He had, a, he had a, a more sensitive conscience than dear old dad did. Dear old pastor dad. And, and, I, and I, we went on and on for about two minutes. And I tried another time. I went at it a couple different ways. And he finally said, dad, I don't think it's right for me to go to that movie. We need to choose another movie. And it was like, bing, the Holy Spirit finally said, Jim, would you stop trying to corrupt or whatever the word was, your son in this moment? don't try to encourage them to do something that they believe is wrong. We don't get to flaunt our liberty and we don't get to use our liberty in such a way to be a stumbling block to other people. I'll say say another thing. It says, for example, I'll talk about ranting on social media and something that I have a personal conviction about this. For example, you know, political opinions, all of you have them, right? You get three people in a room, there's going to be four political opinions, right? So everybody has a political opinion, and uh, I guarantee you they're all over the map, even in this room, what the political spectrum is in this room. So the point is, we we don't have unity in Christ. We don't have fellowship in the church of God in this house of prayer, we don't have that kind of unity and fellowship based upon everybody believing the same thing politically, right? What is it that gives our unity in this room? It's based upon our common faith in Jesus and our trust in Him. And all the other stuff are just opinions of men and women, right? So we don't, get the, we don't have the right to disfellowship. We don't have the right to, uh, to break apart over something that isn't based on the core issues of the church and of the gospel. So political opinions, we all have that. And I may think, I may believe that I have the freedom to express my political opinions, whether in or out of the pulpit. Or maybe I think I have the, the, uh, the freedom to quote, post something of a rant online or on a website or on a chat forum or uh, perhaps on a Facebook, a post, or a perhaps even more, on a reply to somebody else's Facebook post that I vehemently disagree with. Right? It's like uh, you can't like this. <laughs> what? Okay. Um, I don't know. What, I don't even know what I wrote there. But the point, the point, <laughs> the point that I'm trying to say is, I may have the freedom to write that. Right? Freedom of speech. Right? it's, it's right there in the Constitution. But do I have the right of that as a Christian? Do I have the right to do that as a Christian leader if that is going to lead to division? If that's going to lead to people saying, I don't want to go to your church because I read what you wrote online? Huh? That's where my freedom would be used to damage or weaken somebody else's faith and that would damage and not advance the gospel. And so the question that I'm always asking myself, I said, there's a bigger picture than just me having the freedom to do whatever I wanna do. And, And the bigger picture is this, there's more at stake than just my personal freedom. Will this exercise of my freedom most likely hinder Or advance the gospel and the kingdom of God? And that's a good question to ask yourself. Will what you say or do, is that more likely to hinder, to damage, or to advance the kingdom of God? You see, sometimes it's just good to limit yourself. That's why Paul says this in verse 13. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. Does that mean Paul said suddenly, hey, vegetarian's the way to live, vegan's the way to go. I'm against me- eating meat at all times and all places. No, Paul didn't believe that. But Paul believed in that moment around that person whose conscience might be violated, for him to exercise his freedom, that was going to be damaging to that other believer. And he said, if that's what it is, if that causes this other believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. So here's the bottom line. Use your freedom in Christ to build up others, not tear down your faith. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We've been talking this morning a lot about freedom in Christ. And I sometimes, I think about that phrase and I don't wanna rush past that and just assume that everybody in the room and everybody listening online automatically has this freedom in Christ. That freedom in Christ only comes when you realize what Jesus has done for you and when you've accepted that, when you've embraced Jesus and, fall, and agreed to follow him as your Lord and Savior. There's where you find the freedom in Christ. There's where Romans 8 and chapter 1 comes true where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? But that means if you're in Christ. So the the the, the bigger question to ask yourself, besides what are all the do's and don'ts for Christians to do and what's going to violate somebody else's conscience, the biggest question of all is: do you have the freedom that is in Christ? Do you have that knowledge that you have put your trust in Jesus? Let's bow our heads. And go to the Lord together in prayer. Lord Jesus, first of all, we want to thank you. We want to praise you because you have set us free from the power of sin and death. Your word says the wages of the consequences of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so... Our prayer is that everybody here puts our trust in Jesus Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Lord, we put our trust in you because we want to be found in you. No condemnation, free from sin, grafted into the family of God, knowing that we're going to be in heaven with you forever, knowing that we're part of your family by faith even now knowing that we're part of this church family even now, and that in you we have freedom because it says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So Lord, we're grateful for the freedom that you've given us. No more condemnation, no more death because of sin, no more fear. So Lord, thank you for that. But Lord, as we are your followers, as we are living our lives, Lord, help us to be known more for our love for you than for our knowledge Of your word. Lord, keep us from flaunting our freedom if that quote freedom means that we're damaging somebody else's walk with you in any way. God, help us to love and build up other people. Help us to strengthen their walk with you. And Lord, help us above all to do and obey what you've clearly called us to do. The way that you want us to live, Lord, help us to be faithful to that calling. The way we honor you with our bodies, with our hearts, with our minds, with what we put into our minds, with what we look at, what we read, what we say, Lord, help it all to be for your honor and for the glory of Christ. And Lord, when we think of how you had the freedom in heaven as God, and yet you limited yourself voluntarily, when you took on human flesh, you curbed your own freedoms, for our good so that you could show us the way back to a right relationship with God. Lord, Lord, help us to look at the way you curbed your own freedom and help us to follow that example in the way that you want us to. Lord, we love you and we pray that your kingdom will continue to grow in this church and in our lives and we bless you in Jesus' name, amen.